0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Romans 15. Romans 15, Lord willing, we will walk through verses 1 through 4 this morning. Uh, I'm over the next two weeks going to do a very small mini series uh, called Where Do We Go From Here? The reason for this is because we have been scattered through the summer. vacations here and there, things that take us away. With school starting tomorrow uh, in Spartanburg County, I think in Greenville County as well, uh, all the kids said? Yeah, see, I thought that was going to be the answer. But with with school starting back, it means that so many of us are kind of brought back. And so what I thought would be good, since we have come to the end of uh, our summer series, Walking Through the Fruit of the Spirit, and before I begin walking through the book of Ruth, is that we would come together and sort of regroup and, and uh, sort of recalibrate together as a faith family and say, where do we go from here? Uh, so that's the purpose of this. You heard in the West Virginia team and the sharing there uh, a couple of things that, that will guide where we're going to go over the next two weeks. Today, you heard Matt particularly talk about the relationship that he had with his youth minister and how his youth minister poured into him and discipled him. And so today we're going to deal with this issue of discipleship. Next week, we're going to look at the issue of missions and and cultural engagement. Not necessarily in West Virginia or in New York City, while you're going to hear from those teams, but we're going to talk about that going forward right here where God has placed us. And so that's what you're going to hear over the next two weeks, uh, discipleship and missions here at home. Well, Yesterday was a big day for me and my family. Yesterday, we moved our oldest into college uh, to begin his freshman year. We took him to the dorm there at North Greenville University, only 30, forty minutes away from here it's not like he's going to the other side of the country or anything like that, but uh, we took him up there and uh, and I thought everything was was great this is a celebration you know he's nineteen he's uh, he's been nineteen for a while so he's ready to get out of the house and uh, so we, we moved him into his dorm we got everything set up and there was a point when I was there uh, putting a bookshelf into his room that his TV would set Be seated on, and and you know it's important to have your TV and your Xbox. That's what you go to college for. And so I'm I'm setting up this this uh, this shelf, and I'm having to cut a hole in the back of the shelf for cords to come through. And it hit me that while my son was still in the womb, I built that shelf to hold the books to go into his nursery. And I'm sitting there cutting this hole through, drilling through the back of this this shelf. And I looked up at Lana and I said, I built this to go in his nursery. And there went the waterworks, <laughs> right? We get through the day. We, we go through the, 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 uh, the welcome to the campus, and there comes time for this, what they call the big hug, where all the parents and the family members hug on, on, on the quad there at North Greenville. And, uh, and I look over, and my daughter has embraced my son. And you always think, I don't think they like one another, you know? As they fight all the time and all this, but they had she had embraced him, and she was just bawling, and um, my wife starts bawling. And do you know how one of the hardest things for a man is to see his wife and his daughter cry? Am I right on that, men? Because you can be all tough till they're crying, and you feel like, what in the world's happening? I got to fix it, you know. And then here, here we go. So this was us yesterday. I'm just bearing my soul to you here. But what I realized yesterday moving him in was that for 19 years, everything that we have done for Micaiah was to prepare him for that moment. You don't have kids. Nobody has kids and, so, and with the thought of we're keeping them in our house forever. In fact, some days you're thinking, how long till we can push them out? But everything up till that point, 19 years, was to help him grow up. And that's what discipleship is. Here in the context of the local church family, discipleship is taking care, taking covenant with one another so that we can help one another grow up. Regardless of our birthday, our age, we're all in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, and we need one another to grow up in him. So that's what I want us to look at today. If you'll follow along with me, I'll read aloud from Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, We might have hope. Would you pray with me? And let's ask God to be our teacher this morning. Lord, we come to you knowing that your word is perfect. That it gives us exactly what we need. It is sufficient for all that life will bring to us. And so, Lord, right now, as your servant, I pray, God, would you come and reveal the truth of Romans 15, 1 through 4 to this congregation Lord, would you cause us to see the mandate that you have given to each one of us for your own glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you just some things out of this passage this morning. The first is that as believers in the context of a local faith family, we are called to bear with the failings of the weak, meaning we're to, we're to support one another. Now, if we, if we go back, if we step back to when Paul is writing this, we have to look at the larger context of why he's writing this. And in the church where he is writing, he's dealing with uh, Jews who had converted to Christ coming together in this sort of brackish community with Gentiles who had come to Christ, and they're having to learn to coexist together in, the, in what's called the church. Chapter 11 talks about that some of the branches of Israel were broken off because of their unbelief. They did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Instead, they looked further, and they thought he could not be the Messiah. He was nailed to a tree. Therefore, he's cursed of God. They still waited on a Messiah. But these Jews saw him as the one who had been promised, and they believed And they they were then grafted back in. There's also, he talks about the wild shoots, meaning the Gentiles, those that weren't descendants of Abraham, that they were grafted in. And so here's this Jewish Gentile converts coming together in the church. In chapter 14, these Jewish believers were understandably struggling with the concept of grace. Uh, All they had known all their lives was legalism and, and law. They had, they, had, they had strived for perfection in carrying out these laws. If, if you remember, all these people that interacted with Jesus, in fact, the, the rich young ruler runs up to Jesus, and what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? And so it was all this concept of do, and they struggled with this now that they came to Christ. And while they, I think, in one sense, understood that they were saved by grace alone, they wrestled with legalism because it was just coming out of that life. Well, the Gentile believers, they had never really had a lot of law. They came in by grace, and, and here, while some of them could have very easily struggled with license, Paul is that's not his, his focus here. Paul is referring to those Gentile believers as those who were strong, that they were the ones who understood fully that their salvation rested on God's grace alone. And he says to them, that's why he says to them, let the, the, the strong among us, we have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak. He urges them to forsake their freedoms for the sake of their brothers, to lay aside what they're perfectly free to do in Christ for the sake of their brother or sister who is weak, who has room for um, instruction in their biblical or in their convictions. What I would say to you today, one of the questions I would ask is here today in the church, who are the weak? Paul's command here is the, the strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak. Well, who are the weak among us? And I would submit to you that all of us are the weak, at least at some point. At least when we compare ourselves to someone else in the body, we would say, I'm not where so-and-so is. They seem to know more than I do. They seem to understand more. They've walked with the Lord longer than I have. And maybe you, you'd compare yourself to someone and say, I'm weak in that respect, I would also ask you the question, well, then who are the strong? And I would also submit to you that all of us as believers are in some way strong because all of us can also look and say we're not where we once were. That God has brought us from, from there and he has, he has matured us. No, we're not there yet, but he has, he has grown us to a point. My point is this, and I think this is God's point through Paul, is that in every church there is what I'm going to call the, the weak, strong continuum. And it's this line, if you'll imagine it, this, on one end of the line, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pick on you all, on one end of the line is the weak, right? And on the other end of the line is the strong. And I want you to imagine on this line, a continuous line throughout, where would you graph yourself? Would you graph yourself down here at the end and say, No, I'm brand new, I'm really weak? Or would you graph yourself somewhere up closer here and say, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty strong. I know I'm not all the way there yet, but I feel like I'm strong in the faith. Or would it be somewhere in the middle? My point in, in saying this and giving you this visual is that there will always be people on either side of us. And that's the way I want us to look at this, not in a judgmental way, not so that we might say, Well, look where I am on the line. But instead, Paul's words here to to the Romans is is that they would would see where they are and see where their brother or sister is, and they would bear with the failings of those who are weaker than them. We have an obligation, he says, to bear with one another. The word bear here is a word that means to support, to carry, to shoulder. And he uses this word, we have an obligation And what he means by that, this is a word that is a financial term, and it's used around debt. What he's saying is that we are in debt to those who are weaker than us. I came to that, and I I thought, obligation, we're in debt to? That's a strong word, Paul. Why are we in debt to bear with the failings of the weak? Let me read to you a verse. Matthew 8, verse 17. He, meaning Jesus, took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The reason that we are in debt to those who are weaker than us is because that Jesus when we were weak when he was not obligated to bore our weaknesses. That he that he humbled himself and came to where we were he did not look at us in our weakness in our sin and say not my problem. Instead what the Bible reveals to us the gospel reveals is that Jesus said I'm taking it on as my problem. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and he bore our weakness. Therefore, our obligation is to bear with the failings of the weak around us. And I would submit to you again that sadly, in so many churches, this is a missing element today. That those who are strong in the church, who maybe consider themselves to be stronger than they really are, there's strong believers, would say something like, why would I ever want to get tangled up with someone who's weak? Because if I do, they're probably just going to weigh me down and it's going to slow me down in my pursuit of the Lord. And the weak among us might say something like, well, I'm not, I'm not where Paul is, I'm, I'm pretty weak, and so this command really doesn't apply to me. I, how am I going to bear with the failings of anyone else? No one's weaker than I am. But I would point out to you that in verse 2 of chapter 5, Paul uses the phrase, each of us. And his point is that there's not one of us who can say I'm either too weak or I'm too strong to need one another. We are to bear with the failings of the weak among us. What will it require? It tells us there in the passage in the last part of verse one it tells us that if we're going to bear with the failings of the weak it will require for us not to please ourselves. And I think this is probably A flaw in so many churches today that it is so easy for church members to come in and be self-seeking and to not have concern for their brother or sister and everyone's sort of on their own. And this is not the picture of what a church is to be. A church is to be a covenant family that cares for one another and in the same way finds themselves at times drilling a hole in the backside of a shelf and saying, I built this when they were in infancy. And look at where they are now. I've watched them grow. And this is what we are called to. We are called to bear with the failings of the weak. The second command here that that Paul gives to us is is he says, not only bear with the failings of the weak, but we are to build one another up. In verse 2 he says, it's not enough to bear with our brother's weaknesses, but we must build him up. I would tell you that I think there's a phrase that sums up where the gospel meets the church. And it is this, that God loves you enough to meet you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. And this is exactly what God has in mind with the discipleship and sanctification that takes place in the context of the community of the local church. That he will not leave us where we are. He saves us by his grace in the gospel and then he continues to pour out his grace in relationships within the local congregation. Well, just like to bear with the failings of the weak, it will require us not to seek our own pleasure, the, the counterpart to that, we see what it will require to build one another up. The, the first part of verse 2 says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. So he tells us the negative side of that is don't please yourself, but it's not enough just to say, well, I'm not gonna please myself. We must go on the offensive and we must seek to please our neighbor. But I want you to notice that he he doesn't merely say, please your neighbor. You know, a, a weak believer is a lot like a child. You ever go to the store with a child? This is no offense to children, okay? But if you ever go to the store with a child, what do they want in the grocery store or in Walmart or whatever? They want everything, right? Anything and everything, especially those things that are either made of sugar or require batteries. Am I right? And they will make noise when you're on a road trip. That's what they want, right? No offense to kids. I love you, kids, all right? But weak believers are a lot, a lot like this. They will go through life and there will be things that they want. I want this, I want that. And what we have realized is that a weak believer is drawn to those things that are not necessarily the best for them. They don't need the sugary snack. They don't need the toy that blinks and flashes and makes noise. There are so many things that a, a new believer, a weak believer needs, and it's not the flashy things of this world. Paul doesn't here say to them, just please your neighbor. This is not just, hey, let's just all get along. This is not, we're going to be unified no matter what the cost. This is, we're going to seek the good of our neighbor for his good. We're going to to look out for what is really, truly good for our brothers and sisters. Things that will build him up, build her up, make each other strong. And we do this by not seeking our own pleasures, but seeking theirs for their good. We bear with their failings so that we can build one another up. This is the mandate here in Romans 15. Then Paul gives us something that I think is pretty crucial, pretty, pretty ingenious on his part. And I think this comes directly at the, at the leadership of the Holy Spirit as Paul's writing this. In verse 3, he gives us the example of Christ. Paul doesn't point to himself. He doesn't point to any of the, the other apostles. He points to Jesus himself. In verse 3, he says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus was anything but self-seeking. I mean, you think about the life of Jesus and you think, man, he, he never really thought of himself. I mean, there were times when Jesus even had to go without eating because the crowds were pressing in on him and he went without, without food and without sleep. There were occasions where he had to step into a boat and push out from the land a little bit so that the crowd would not be smothering him as he taught them. This was Jesus not thinking of himself, but thinking of others. He bore our failings in order to build us into temples of God, that would house the spirit of God, that would house the person of Christ. Well, what I'm saying to you is if this is what we are called to do, if this is what Christ models for us, I'm saying to you that we will never accomplish this if all we ever do is attend a worship service like this. Now, don't hear me say that this worship service is not important because this worship service, particularly the sermon of this worship service, consumes the better part of my week. I'm not telling you to forsake this. In fact, I would tell you that it is crucial that you and I make this a top priority. That we, when we, when we leave our Sunday school classes, and I pray that you're there, If you haven't found a Sunday school class, we're going to be pushing you and giving you an opportunity to sign up there. But I pray that when you leave from those classes that you would make it a priority to be in here on time ready. I heard Eric this morning in our Sunday school class talk about this on the job and in the corporate world talking about you know when someone says we start work at 8 o'clock, it doesn't mean I show up at 8 o'clock. And then I'm ready to go about 8.15. It means that I may have to show up at 7.30 so that I'm ready to go at 8 o'clock. And the reality is for us people is that this time is crucial. I would implore you as your pastor to make it a priority to to fellowship with one another, yes. But let's not put the fellowship of one another over and above the worship of God. Let's make being in this place, and I don't want to sound legalistic, but let's make being here on time, ready to engage, a priority for what we do. what I'm what I'm trying to point out to you is this if if we're called to bear one another's burdens and build one another up, if Christ has modeled this for us, we will not we will not accomplish it if all we ever do is attend this this room, this worship service. Instead, Romans 15, one through 4, cannot, the worship service cannot bear the weight of that mandate. It will require more than this service. And that's where I want to lay out for you today this three-part strategy. And This is where we're going. So where do we go from here? This is where we are going. Three-part strategy, I want to use some vernacular for you because we want, to, we want to approach discipleship in a holistic manner. Now, some of these things are going to be, there's nothing new. Uh, in fact, there's really nothing new in any of this, Really? But I just want you to see the whole um, design of the strategy here. The vernacular is this, head, hands, and heart. And I want to walk through this passage, verse 4 particularly, and show you this, that these are our three uh, three parts to our strategy. First off, the head. In other words, gearing toward instruction. Verse 4, the ver- first part says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And so what's being communicated here and what we're trying to take seriously is that our Sunday school classes, our Bible studies, are going to focus on this. It's going to focus on teaching. It's going to focus on instruction. Paul also told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture Is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Sunday school classes are the way that we're going to strive to accomplish this, where the main purpose is going to be instruction or doctrine. We're trying to give you doctrine. In Sunday school classes, there there will be a couple of exceptions to this as well. There's a ladies' Bible study that's getting ready to start on September 11th, on Tuesday. There's going to be a morning and an an evening session for, I think, nine or ten weeks. You can sign up for it at the Connect desk. Also there, the purpose, one of the main purposes is we're going to teach you from the Scriptures. You may say, well, Pastor, I'm not a theologian. I'm not really an intellectual type of person. I'm not a theologian. I don't really care much about doctrine. And I would push back on you and and disagree respectfully. You see, all of us are theologians. Even if you're not a believer, you are a theologian. Because a theologian, a a theology for you is your personal theology is what you believe about God. And your theology will come out in your life. It It will direct the way you behave, the way you act. And so the reason that we want to make this so crucial is we want you, and I, I think you would want this, don't you want to think and believe right things about God? Don't you want to come to the Bible and say, I don't want to have an opinion, I want to know. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to base this on, on something that I heard somewhere. I want to know what God says on this. And this is why we're making Sunday school classes a part of this strategy to approach the head. The second part is, are the hands. The hands. If you follow on through, uh, to in, there in verse 4, it says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures. And this is focusing on the hands. In other words, not instruction, but practice. You know, two words here in this, that section of, of verse 4 I would point your attention to. One is endurance. Endurance is a word that means to remain under, to abide there, to stay under. And here, it particularly refers to staying under the instruction of God's Word. In essence, obeying it. Encouragement is the other word, and it it means to come alongside. As we're seeking to live out God's instruction, God's Word encourages us. If you don't believe this, look at places like Hebrews 11. You read of all these people there in in the hall of faith in the Bible, and you see how even when they could not see, they trusted God and they believed. And they're, they're recorded, and it encouraged them, and it encourages us to continue on. Our strategy here, our, our, our method, I guess, for this part of it, it would be life groups. We want to push you toward life groups. Now, many of you have asked about the difference between Sunday school classes and life groups. And, and I admit to you, we have not done a good job of explaining that to you. Let me, let me give you the difference right here. Sunday school classes or Bible study will focus primarily on instruction of giving truth. Life groups will primarily focus on applying that truth in the context of a small group of people. In a life group, you will will gather with people who are at different stages of life Many of them maybe have small kids or, or like us have kids living, leaving the house or maybe some senior adults in there, maybe some teenagers in there. And you're going to gather with these people and you're going to discuss the sermons and you're going to wrestle with things. And you're going to say, you know, when the pastor said this, I'd never thought about it that way. I struggle there. And you're going to hear someone across the room say, you know, you're exactly right, and I struggle there as well. How can we flesh this out? And what happens is you're not, you're not in that moment receiving instruction without any time to process it, but in that moment, you're given an opportunity to flesh this out with accountability from other members. You're encouraged to stay under it, to endure. This is the hands section of it. So, so head and then hands, and the third is heart. And this is the strategy. Heart, hands, or, or head, hands, heart. Uh, the last part of verse 4 says, so that we might have hope. The corporate worship gathering is the place where hope in God most clearly shows up. It is in this room when we gather together and we sing songs. And maybe, maybe you don't, are not naturally prone to singing songs. Well, the Bible reveals that Christianity is a singing faith. And that we sing together and we sing these things that are true of God and we sing them with gusto because God has renewed our hearts to see his beauty. And we sing together and this is where our hope most clearly shows up. Now Paul could have gone any, uh, to any number of examples in the New Testament to illustrate that Jesus didn't think of himself but he bore our burdens in order to build us up. He could have gone anywhere. One of those from the New Testament, from the Gospels that would come to my mind is when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. I mean, there are very few things that would be kind of more uncomfortable than bending down and washing the nasty, dirty, grubby, gnarly toes of these disciples. Am I right? That's just not something you're signing up for. We have trouble, you know, at times getting people to sign up to make coffee. You know, what if I said, we need volunteers to wash people's feet, (laughs) How many are signing up for that? Jesus did it. Paul could have pointed to that. He could have said, Jesus bore the failings of the weak so that he could build them up by washing their feet. But he didn't, know that. He didn't go there. You know where he went? He goes back a thousand years and quotes Psalm 69, 9. You say, why in the world does he go back there? He goes back to Psalm 69, 9, and he quotes there in verse, verse 3, uh, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He quotes this and you think, why in the world does he go back that far? Why doesn't he just go to something they're more familiar with? You know why he did? Because Paul wants to show us that every single sentence written in the entire Bible was written so that we might have hope. There is none of this where we can divorce and separate ourselves from the Old Testament because Jesus Quoted and, and, he, and he sought out and he, and he taught from the Old Testament Scriptures. That Jesus is the one who fulfilled what was revealed in the Old Testament. That all the promises of God that were revealed in the Old Testament are yes and amen in Christ. And every single word of every single sentence of the entire Bible was written to give us hope. And so this is our strategy. The head, the hands, and the heart. This is a holistic approach. We believe. Because we want you to know truth. We want you to live truth so that you might hope in God. Because this is the goal of all discipleship, hope in Christ. That through every season of your life, we might find our hope in him. That's what growing in Christ looks like. I uttered a prayer. It's a prayer I've uttered for my son for a long, long time. God, get him. God, get all of him. Lord, help him to find his joy in you. Help him to hope in you alone, God. And that's the prayer that we have for all of you as well. As pastor stands in this place, your staff stands together, and we pray, Oh, God, would you make us a place filled with people who hope in you? And we believe this is an important strategy that will serve us well. We don't think that this is the end all and the be all, but but we do think this is something that we're putting a lot of eggs in this basket, saying, please join us in this. We care about your discipleship. We're taking it seriously. To which I would say to you this morning, if you aren't participating in a Sunday school class, if you're not committed to and faithful to the worship service, if you haven't joined and taken part in a life group, I would say to you that you're missing at least a part of the process. And I don't say this in order to to heap guilt upon you. I realize that there are some things that will prevent you from being a part of all of those. And so I don't want you to hear me saying today that if you're not in all three of those, that somehow you're not going to grow in the Lord. Because God has promised that he will see you through all the way to the end that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. He will see you through. But I'm telling you that as far as the strategy here goes, I think it's important that if you can, to join in a Sunday school class, a Bible study where you will receive instruction, to join into a life group where you will flesh out that instruction and the instruction that you hear in the sermons and then come together with God's people in the worship service and express your hope in him. This is the three-part strategy that we're pushing you to. On September 9th, this is where I'll close. On September 9th, which is a few weeks away, a couple weeks away or so, uh, there's going to be some new Sunday school classes. We're going to reorganize some of them. Uh, Some of them will will change just a little bit. Uh, By the way, I'm thankful for those Sunday school teachers. If you're a Sunday school teacher in this room, uh, I I want you to know as your pastor, I'm, I'm very thankful for you. You guys are in so many ways. The, the pastors of this congregation. And so I'm thankful for you. Uh, Scotty Stone right now is in the ICU. He's my Sunday school teacher. He's, just, he's recovering from quadruple bypass. But I'm thankful for these, these teachers that study. But we're going to consolidate a couple of those and launch a couple of new ideas. You'll hear about that next week. And there will be sign-up sheets at the Connect desk. The, and because we are consolidating and sort of rearranging, we're going to ask everybody... Regardless if you're already in a Sunday school class, we're going to ask everybody to sign up for your class again. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't come if you don't sign up, but it would help us tremendously if you would sign up. It's going to help us to know how much curriculum to order, uh, how, how the teacher know how to prepare, all those things. But please help us in that. We're also on September 9th going to be launching life groups, our, our season again of life groups. All of those are on Sunday evenings now. Uh, we've had a couple that were through the week that, uh, that have sort of fizzled, if for lack of a better word, and we've got all of those on Sunday evenings. We are not committed to only being Sunday evenings. If a need arises for a, a life group in the middle of the week, we're open to that. As God provides the leaders and, and, the, and the host homes, we are open to launching those. But uh, those will begin again on September 9th, and again, you can sign up at the Connect desk. I would close simply by saying to you, this is where we're going. This is so much of what life is about. Jesus tells us that we're following him, that we're walking after him, that we're not going to be like him overnight, that there will come a time where we will see him face to face, we will know him as he is. The Bible tells us in Revelation that one day we will, we will be seated on thrones and we will in some way rule alongside of him, not to be worshiped like him, but in some ways we will join him in, the, in, in ruling. Until then, we're in this process of, of following God, of walking with him. So I would implore you as your pastor to take seriously this issue of discipleship in your life. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. And God, I pray that you would take it and that you would clearly apply it to every person in this room. God, that you would take it and, Lord, that you would massage it into Our hearts, God, that we might be receptive to it and we might be responsive to it as well. Lord, we are not perfect as leaders of this church, but God, we are trying to be faithful and trying to be serious about the people that you have entrusted to us. Colossians 1 tells me that as a pastor, I'm going to have to give an account for every person that you've placed under my leadership. And so God, I pray standing here, asking your people to respond in that light. God, would you take this and make us like you? God, would you glorify yourself as we become better reflections of you? God, would you do it all for your namesake? In Jesus' name, amen. I wanna give you an opportunity to reflect and respond. Perhaps something was said today that that has sparked something in you and maybe God has made clear a point of application for you, a point of next step obedience, then go and do that. I'll be seated here on the front row. If I can help you in that, come speak with me. Perhaps maybe you've neglected this issue of discipleship in your own life or sort of gotten lazy in it. And perhaps you would just wanna come and kneel across these steps and pray as a faith family and say, God, would you cause us to be serious about growing in you? And Lord, would you do it for your own namesake? Whatever it is that God is leading you to, would you respond with yes today? Let's worship Him."